Plato's Cave is produced by Muckraker Media. You can find out more at muckrakermedia.org. Welcome to Plato's Cave. I'm Jordan Myers, and today we're going to take another step towards exiting the cave by speaking to the public historian Justin Clark. Um, I'm recording this just after I finished speaking with him, and it was a really interesting conversation. We didn't speak about a single thing that I had on the to talk about list, um, but like I told Justin, I, I think that's a mark of a, a good guest and a good conversation. Um, we discussed a, a lot of things, honestly. It, the the philosophy underlying different political stances, um, what's wrong with the American political system, uh, what he thinks is ethically um, and, and morally correct in a political philosophy um, framework. I, I think it was a really interesting conversation. And, you know, we, we touched a lot of hot, um, hot button topics, which... I, I think will you know he, he brought up a lot of, of really good points for a lot of unconventional um, political positions and I think you know that's it's an interesting thing as a, a personal exercise for me to hear and I think it's uh, a really good exercise for a lot of you know any listeners out there to hear so um, you know that that's that's all I have to say um, for now and I hope that you get as much out of this talk as I got so here's the episode. Well, with me today, I have Justin Clark. He is a public historian that I'm very interested to uh, talk to about, I think, a, a kind of a broad-ranging um, set of topics today. So, Justin, thanks for uh, coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So, we were just talking um, before we started recording about some of your past projects, um, but because I, I know uh, that you said that you used to do a podcast, but was it multiple that you used to do? Yeah, I used to do a few different podcasts. Um, back when I was heavily involved in sort of the you know atheist, secular, humanist community, I did three shows. The mm. first one I did was a weekly show I called An Army of Principles, which is a quote from Thomas Paine. Mm. It's a great quote where he says, an army of principles can penetrate where an army of soldiers cannot. Um, and, uh, and so that was sort of where the name came from. And that was a weekly show, sort of a topical show where I went over news topics. The second show I did was a show called Secular Nation, which was a podcast I did for the Atheist Alliance of America. And I was involved with that organization for a few months. And then um, I became very uh, disillusioned with the leadership um, and very bothered by a lot of what was going on behind the scenes um, in terms of the organization. So I left that organization uh, almost three years ago now. And I started my own project called... Um, uh, Reason Revolution, which was sort of a uh, the last sort of big secular project I did. Hmm. And about two years ago, I sort of had, ironically enough for, for me, I sort of had a crisis of faith. I was just sort of like, why am I, why, why am I so obsessed with talk talking about atheism all the time? And at the time, my politics were also starting to change. Um, hmm. I, I used to, I used to have pretty, I would say sort of boring, vanilla, um, sort of neoliberal politics. And I realized that a lot of the people who I had admired sort of in the broader secular community had politics and honestly just views in general that I thought were extremely reactionary and sort of backward. And, and some of them I thought were just downright immoral. And I just had a, and then, you know, and then I sort of had like a falling out with my partner on that project and two. Mm. And so at, at some point I just sort of had like a epiphany of like, I just don't want to do this anymore. And that was around the time that I found a book that sort of changed my life in a lot of ways. 
And it was a book called Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less by mm. um, Greg McEwen. And that book kind of changed my life. I wrote an article about it, which I think is available on the Muckraker website now, and uh, about sort of, you know, decluttering your life and sort of finding your purpose. And so for me, it was basically like, why these things? I don't get paid to do them. I don't particularly enjoy doing them anymore. <laughs> I don't find them valuable. And I just sort of stopped doing them. And I, I stopped doing that. Um, and, you know, I, and I just, I, I, I sort of reconfigured how I was living my life, focused more on my career. And now what I do now between most of my job, which keeps me pretty busy, but now I'm just a writer. I just write for my website, um, justinclark.org. Um, and then that stuff's going to be out on the, the Muckraker uh, Media Network. So I'm very happy about that, to just do stuff that's just me. It doesn't have a name. It doesn't have a brand proposition. It's just me. So I can yeah. just talk about what I want. Yeah. No, it's it's funny that you say that because honestly, I mean, the past couple of months, I, I've kind of felt the same way where it's just like, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people talk about, oh, like I just, I got to do more. I got to do more. I feel the exact opposite. I'm just like, I need to do way less. I, I just, I feel, I feel spread so damn thin all the time. Uh, and it's just, you know, I, I almost feel like I almost want to make a list of like four or five things I'm allowed to do. And I can't do it if it's not on the list, you know, just like choose, you know, the things that are just the most enjoyable short term and long term combined, however you want to weigh that balance and just stick to those things. Just make it simple. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. There are two things I'll, I'll sort of follow up with that. First off, one rule that I always kind of follow that is a good rule of thumb is if it's not a 100 percent yes, it's a 100 percent no. Yeah. And is that so, Tim Ferriss? I, it might be. I'm not okay, sure. Okay. Uh, uh, it's something that I remember reading in the McEwen book. Um, and it may have been something he got from him or like Peter Drucker or somebody, mm -hmm. one of those like management guys. But that's something that really stuck with me. The other thing that really stuck for me with the book was there was a designer uh, for Braun uh, from Germany. He was a guy named Dieter Rams. And his sort of attitude about life was uh, in German, I'm going to say it badly, but I'll say it anyway. It's a vinegar abbebesser, which means less but better. Mm -hmm. And so the goal of life for me is to do less but better. So it's, mm -hmm. you know, would you rather do 100 things of sort of, medio of mediocre quality or do you want to do like five things that are pretty good that you feel good about? And that was kind of what I, uh, that was how I sort of changed my life. I was, it was just like, I was just doing too much. And I realized like, none of this is making me happy. It's putting a strain on my personal life. It's putting a strain on my health. It's putting a strain on my marriage. I'm like, I'm not doing this anymore. And so that was it. And that sort of started my transformation. That was how um, I lost 65 pounds. It's how I turned my health around. Uh, it's how I got my new job, which is a permanent job. Um, and so, yeah, it was basically realizing like what actually matters. And that's a question that I think we always have to come back to is what actually matters in life? What is important? Because if we're not doing that, then in a lot of ways, we're just sort of reacting to life instead of being proactive about it. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. We did, I, I covered, um, on, on my other show, that's BS. We did a, uh, a, a, a dual uh, set of podcasts on um, Nietzsche's work and well specifically thus spoke Zarathustra and I covered it actually it was sort of like part of the reason um, the motivation to do Plato's cave um, 
the the podcast that we're on now. And, um, and you know, it's just I don't know. I'm not familiar with all of his work, but thus spoke Zarathustra just hit hit home for me so powerfully in in you know the sense that like wow I mean it just it made me really reflect and look at things that I do and we all do that it's just inscrutable why we do it, it, it but for the mere you know repetition that we've done it before you know what I mean it's just like I find there's so much in life that is either expected of you to do or you just sort of you find yourself doing it and it's insane to kind of step back and like Nietzsche says it's a really scary thing to do and it's a really difficult thing to do um, to step back and just say wow if I just if I'm brutally honest with myself what if I could only keep like you said you know if I could only keep five things in my life what would those five things be and then actually evaluate if if the other things are actually bringing you any joy or not and if you want to keep them um, so his, his work has really affected me the past couple months. Oh, yeah, I think Nietzsche is great. And a lot of my understanding of Nietzsche is through Walter Kaufman, you know, the great translator and biographer of Nietzsche. And one of the things that I take from sort of existentialism broadly, um, as someone who's, you know, I've read Kierkegaard, I've read Sartre, is this idea of, of sort of affirming life, regardless of whether or not it has any meaning, right? Mm -hmm. And especially that comes out of out of um, out of Sartre, too, is that like, there really is no ultimate meaning to any of this, right? When we sort of make our own meaning and the meanings that we make matter because they relate to us. And that there, we have to have an affirmative yes to life. You have to have that sense of, of, of saying yes to life, but not saying yes to everything about it. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's always been about you know, thinking consciously about, do I need to buy that thing? Do I need to do this thing? Do I have to go to this social engagement? Do I, do I really wear that sweater? Like those <laughs> are all things that matter to me that I think about more and more and more and more. You know, my closet now fits a basically about half, half a walk-in closet. The other half is my wife's. And then we have a whole other bedroom, which is the office I'm in mm. that has a whole other walk-in closet. It, but we all have our vices, right? So like hers is clothes, like she likes having that. Mine is books. So yeah, I may only have half a walk-in closet of clothes, but I have four bookshelves. So it's so it's it's just, you know, it's not saying no to everything. You know, mm -hmm. there are some people, you know, who do the whole 50 items in a bag and that's all they own thing. And I think that's cool. That's fine. Or the people who have tiny houses. But, you know, essentialism to me is about finding what truly is essential to you. It's about, you know, whittling down the unnecessary, excuse me, it's about uh, whittling down the unnecessary to make what McEwen calls your greatest possible contribution. And how can mm. you make that greatest po co possible contribution when you got all this other distracting stuff around you? And I think particularly in the COVID crisis that we're living through now, this lesson is bigger than ever in the mm. sense that, we're really realizing what's actually important, you know? We're realizing that what's actually important are the sanitation workers and, <laughs> the, and, the, and the restauranters and the people who bag your groceries and ring you out, you know? It's not the hedge fund managers. It's not the, it's not the bankers. It's not the politicians. It's the people actually doing the work. They're the ones who are actually essential, right? And so, like, that, I think, is the thing about my hope coming out of this crisis is that there's a shift in values where people mm. understand the value of 
maybe we shouldn't be living in a, in a society in which there's so much excess and so much of it goes to so few people at the expense of everyone else. So that's, I think, the other component to it as well. Yeah, no, it's 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 been a weirdly clarifying time. Um, I, I've I've kind of missed doing things that I took very much for granted in you know what almost feels like a previous life at this point. Uh, and it's just it's funny because you know I, there are things that there there's almost sort of like a barrier to entry to doing them, but but like once you're doing them and especially having re reflected upon doing them, you're really happy to like have done those things. Um, and, and I don't know, like, like this really, it's just really simple things like going outside and like throwing a Frisbee with friends in the park or, I mean, doing those things is sometimes you kind of have to, you know, you have to harangue friends to do it every once in a while. And people, yeah, I'm lazy. I just say, you know, I could, I could, I could, but I want to watch YouTube in bed or something like that. You know, it's just like, no, 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 come on, come on, let's, let's do that. So I'm, I'm really hoping that when we emerge from this, I, I hope uh, like a lust for those activities has been reignited in a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we, one of the things my wife and I try to do every day is take a walk. Um, we didn't get to walk today because it was sort of rainy here in Indiana. But, but, uh, but you know, we try to walk every day. We walk for about 30 minutes. And we spend that, that, that walking time having a conversation with each other and just enjoying each other's company. And those little things matter. Those little bits of time where you're where you're doing something meaningful and really appreciating the moment you're in matter. And so those are the things I've really appreciated in this this whole um, endeavor. I think the other thing I've really just appreciated is the fact that like there's no absolutely no need for me to be in my office every day. You know, I have an office job, and yeah. I realized like yeah. so much of what I can do I can do from home. And just the amount of like gas that I've saved and the amount of time that I've saved not having to drive every single day to somewhere yeah. has been just wonderful. You know, I haven't actually had to refill my car since this whole thing started, you yeah. know, it's, which is crazy because like I had just filled my gas tank right before all this happened, you know, because basically I went into lockdown on March 17th on St. Patrick's Day. And that was and okay. then March 18th was the first day that I was sort of in lockdown. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that's the big thing that, you know, I've just realized like, wow, like there's just so much of this that doesn't matter. And then it opens up the space for realizing, Oh, this, this is important. That's important. Mm. So, yeah, no, uh, no, I, I agree. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like what I referenced earlier. Um, there's not really a good reason why we all have to go into the office all the time, but we do. It's just because, you know, that's the system that we're in and that's kind of what people do. And it's, you know, I think Nietzsche puts it really well when he says like, no, 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 like, look, look, it's not about, it's not about going into the office. That's not the thing. It's about what do you, what cost do you incur by not doing it? Right. Um, and it's like a, it, I love that like contrapositive way he, he puts that in because it's like, wow, you know, there's not a really good reason why I have to wear khakis to work or whatever. But um, and it's not a big deal that I do either. You know, I shouldn't. It's not it's not that huge a deal. But think about the social cost you would incur if you wore sweatpants or athletic shorts. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, everyone be like, what, like, what the, what, what's wrong with that guy? Uh, why, why isn't he mirroring this social agreement that like, oh, we're here to work and this is how we show that to each other. Um, because I, I've been, I haven't worn anything with belt loops in, I don't know, a month and a half at this point, And I, my productivity hasn't gone down, you know? Yeah. Yeah. If anything, mine's gone up and, and I think I wore pants one day. 
There was like one day where I really felt like wearing pants. Yeah. And the big reason for that was because I wanted to wear a pair of shoes. And the mm. shoes didn't look quite right unless I wore actual pants. Okay, okay. That's the one, that's <laughs> one thing I do miss is I miss wearing my shoes. I have a bunch of different Vans, and I like wearing my Vans shoes. But yeah, like you're absolutely right. I mean, the other thing I think about, because you're thinking about sort of the way Nietzsche sort of has that contrapositive, right? Mm. Where, you know, it's dialectical, right? And I'm constantly thinking about, you know, you know, for me as, a, uh, you know, as somebody influenced by Marx and by Marxism, the one thing I think about a lot is just the futility of so much of what goes on in modern production. You know, think about all of the stuff that, you know, the economy has 52 different types of toothpaste, but the economy couldn't make enough ventilators to call to help with this crisis. You know, mm -hmm. we actually literally had to take over industries to make them make the things that we need. And it goes to show you that like, there's this like contradiction at the heart of sort of neoliberal capitalism where you have this idea that it's, it's, it's super efficient, but it's efficiency, quote unquote, efficiency is built on other inefficiencies within it. And that's the dialectical part. So you, when you hear from sort of mainstream economists, you hear, well, it's super efficient because people can get the things they need at a price that's affordable, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, it's incredibly inefficient because there's so much that ends up being wasted. Look at the food crisis we're living in right now, where, where you know, you have dairy farmers are literally destroying milk or trying to give it away because they can't, they can't sell it, right? Mm. So we have this a huge excess of milk and we have this huge excess of other foods, but then you have other people who can't get basic foodstuffs out of, you know, it's an incredible amount of inefficiency within a system that was supposedly called, was supposedly told to be efficient. And I think that's understanding those underlying dynamics. And, and I think understanding that dialectical approach is important in understanding the crisis we're in now. Yeah, yeah. No, th the way I guess I've I've always kind of thought about that in slightly different terms, but it seems to be along the lines that you're talking about where it, it the I mean it seems as though, you know, the capitalistic markets are efficient at producing, you know, kind of, you know, uh, consumer goods on their own terms, but I it always seems like they they don't have the power um to work a, in any long-term time scale, um, producing things now so that if a contingency happens later down the line, we're not going to all die. Um, and B, it, it doesn't seem to be a system that can, that can export robust values either. It doesn't seem to, um, it just doesn't seem to be able to weigh in with any sort of, with any sort of power on what we ought to be focusing on as opposed to just merely focusing on. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And then I think that one of the challenges that I think we face is how is how can we change it and how can we you know reform it in a way that's that's viable. So for me, you know, one of the things that say like Trump should have done months ago was was invoke the Defense Authorization Act. This is a law that was passed during the, you know the Truman era to sort of um, bolster defense production or whatever, and. You know, he should have invoked that like in November and said, like, General Motors, you're going to make start making this stuff because we anticipate this problem. Mm. And that level of planning works when you have people at the top who value the planning. The problem is, is that you had a lot of people who had short term interests. And you're right. This is the great point I think you made about the, the, the capitalism we live under is incredibly focused on the short term. It doesn't really care about the sort of long term of things. This is where it sort of falls apart because it doesn't anticipate 
what's going to happen in the future, which is why literally within a matter of weeks, the whole thing collapsed, right? So, mm. and, and this happens all the time. You know, I'm 29 years old. I'll be 30 in July. In my lifetime, there have been three major economic crises. There was the, the dot-com bubble crashing in 2000. You had the subprime mortgage crisis in 2008, and now this in 2020. And those individual things are not the reasons why those crashes happened. Those were sort of the triggers that sort of set it off. But the underlying conditions underneath of what was going on within the system at the time could not handle the shock of, say, the dot-com bubble bursting, or it couldn't handle the subprime mortgage crisis, or couldn't handle coronavirus. Um, and this is not a point I'm making. You know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing uh, the Marxist economist Richard Wolff, who makes the same point about saying, like, we live in a system that is perpetually fueled by crises, and in crises, we don't tend to we don't tend to benefit from. <laughs> so yeah. it's so it's a matter of figuring out how do we make a system that is more equitable. And I would argue the way you do that is, you know, to me, it's about you know, it's it's. It's basically taking over these industries and, and then giving them over democratically to workers. Like, that's what I would do, right? <laughs> Some people have different approaches, whether it's more Keynesian spending um, or whatever. But it's a healthy debate we have to have because I think one of the big things that's important about what we're living in now is that it cannot stay the same. This has to change <laughs> because we can't go back to business as usual. We can't go back to normalcy because there wasn't normalcy to begin with. So we have to really fundamentally shift it to something that works more for everyone rather than just the people who normally benefit from these kinds of things. Hmm. Yeah, uh, I've, you know, this isn't my particular hobby horse. Um, and I, it's, it's always been, no, 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 I, it's interesting to me, but I just, there's sort of a, um, it's funny, it, you know, it's always easier to diagnose problems than to create solutions. Uh, totally, and it's absolutely it's I, I just I love kind of learning about this stuff, but I, I honestly have kind of a blank spot in my mind when it comes to what's your proposed solution then, you know, to all these problems, uh, because I like I frankly, I just don't know enough about this, you know, this area. Um, but and I, I want to circle back. But one thing that I was kind of thinking about today, actually, I was on a run and this thought occurred to me. Um, it it almost seems like I, I wonder I saw some some tweet it came up on my newsfeed about um, it was comparing the um, I believe it was the unemployment rates uh, across different countries the US it was comparing it to France and Germany I think who experienced between a two and four uh, fold increase in their unemployment it rose from you know high threes low fours percentage to uh, high eights, low nines percentage, or something like that. Uh, I can't remember the exact numbers. And the and the U.S.'s went from something like three point nine to thirty three percent, or something like that. I mean, we're off the charts right now. Um, and the one thing that I, I kind of was struck by is I I just I wonder if um, the lack of protection that we're providing right now to small businesses and individuals is going to leave us at the point where when we can all leave our houses and go back to work. The, the people who had a small business who lost, I mean, their life savings maybe, aren't going to be able to restart those businesses. And the only thing that's going to survive are huge corporations and monopolies. And, and we're all just going to be working at Walmart at some point. Um, at, yeah. You're absolutely right. It's, it's ironic that you bring that up because this is something that I find is absolutely correct. And if you look at what's going on right now, 
in terms of what that big that first big stimulus package that they passed a few uh, you know a few weeks ago mm-hmm. if you really look at who benefited from that matt taibbi does really great reporting on this he he writes for rolling stone and he's he wrote about the 2008 financial crash and he he's writing about this particular problem on his website and he made a point of saying that like the vast majority of the gains of the stimulus package that was just passed a few weeks ago is about 43,000 people in the United States. The, there, there are 43,000 people in the United States who have incomes well over a million dollars, and they're the people who most benefited from it. And the way that they most benefited from it was not so much in the direct stimulus spending, but in all of the literally trillions of dollars of backdoor loans from the Federal Reserve, right? Mm. So the Federal Reserve over the last two months has basically pumped somewhere between two and four trillion dollars into the into the United States economy through what they call quantitative quantitative easing, which is basically printing money. It's it's flowing money, cheap money into the market in order to stave off um, liquidity problems, mm. and. This does not benefit your average worker, right? Because the vast majority of Americans don't have stocks. They don't have bonds. And if they do, most of them are tied up into retirement accounts. They're not people who are individual investors. Mm. So we have a system that when it gets bailed out, and it gets bailed out a lot, um, especially in, in our lifetimes, the last 20 years, you know, we, the U.S. economy has essentially been bailed out twice. Um, this time is bigger than the last time. And what you've seen, after what happened after the 2008 crash, you saw exactly what you described, which is a consolidation of businesses. And the way that that happened was that these things are always fueled by debt, right? The dot-com bubble was fueled by overly inflated uh, uh, stock prices for, for tech companies. The mortgage crisis was fueled by horrible loans that were given out with no oversight, which then were turned into what they called mortgage, mortgage-backed securities. Mm-hmm. Those were changed then. And then you have now where now all – so it's you have that was fueled by debt, the the – the mortgage crisis was fueled by debt, and now we're in another area where it's fueled by debt, but it's debt that is on the company's balance sheet because mm. companies have leveraged themselves to hell. And anyway, this probably sounds kind of boring. My main point is is that this you're absolutely right. When you have periods of crisis like this where the government takes a direct hand in sort of propping up the system, the only inevitable result is the concentration of that system. Because there's no way that they're going to be able to really save the small businesses. Because, you know, the first stimulus they did, they had $359 billion worth of stimulus spending in it. That that went out within a matter of literally days. It was gone, right? And so, you know, when you see what Congress is doing now, you have you have very little spending for hospitals. You have very little spending for testing. You have no spending or or back pay for essential workers who should be basically be paid double, if not more. Mm. You have all these other things where what they're really looking out for is not the interests of the average working person. They're really interested in saving the system. And for and in order to do that, they have to basically deal with all of the debt that the that the sort of finance sector has taken on over the last 10 years since we since the quote unquote recovery of 2010. So, yeah, I mean, the whole thing's a mess and I don't think like I don't because we're all at home, like when 2008 happened, like I was in high school, right? Like I remember coming mm-hmm. home the day that Lehman Brothers collapsed and the federal government had to take it over. I remember that. I remember coming home. I remember still going to to school during all of that, you know. I remember all of that. This, we're all at home. 
So we mm. don't see how truly awful it is. And we won't know how truly awful it is until we all go back outside and we all go back into the world. That's when we'll realize, oh my God, this was catastrophic. Mm. And, and it's because we don't have robust social democratic policies in this country. We just don't. That's why France and Germany are able to handle this a lot better. Because they have robust social safety safety net systems in a way the United States doesn't, because they've been because either one we never made them in the first place, or they've been starved for decades. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean that that's super interesting. So I'm assuming, but uh, please tell me what you think about this. That yeah, a sort of maybe like a something similar to a UBI based stimulus package would have actually done more because of, you know, the Keynesian multiplier effect um, for propensity to consume versus propensity to save. Is that kind of the alternative you're advocating for? In some respects, yeah. I mean, I think that's a start. So one of the things that Canada has been doing has been they have basically been offering their employee, their, their, their citizens $2,000 a month every month through the continuation of the crisis. So it's probably going to go into the fall. Mm. What you're seeing in some of the more directly Scandinavian countries, I think Finland or, uh, you know, they're offering 75% of pay for workers. You know, they're doing that in Denmark, yeah, Netherlands. Yeah. They're all doing this, right? So they're basically saying, you're not going to be laid off. You're going to be furloughed. Mm. And then when, when, the, when the economy boosts back up, then you, then you can do that, right? The United States, instead of doing any of that, we did a one-time check of $1,200 for individuals, $2,400 for couples, mm -hmm. which I have not received yet. Yeah, I haven't either. You know? <laughs> um, so, you know, and, and I paid my taxes a month in advance this year. I should have gotten my money. Okay. Okay. I want my Trump bucks. But anyway, <laughs> you know, but you're absolutely right. I mean, I think a UBI is right off, right off, uh, totally right on the money. I think another thing that we needed to do was we needed to extend – um, hazard pay for essential workers. I think that's the other thing. Definitely extending unemployment benefits. All of those things are definitely important. And had you, had you know we taken more of the money instead of bailing out Wall Street like we always tend to do, if you're to put more of that money actually into the real economy of real living, breathing, thinking, feeling human beings, maybe our economy would be a little bit better off. That's why you're seeing this huge amount of unemployment because. So much of our economy, especially the post-2008 economy, is built on what – and I can't remember the first time I ever read this. But it's based on what they call the uh, the precariat. Basically, you have – it's like the proletariat, but they're precarious. Mm -hmm. And what that means is basically you have like part-time workers, people who technically work full-time, but they're actually considered part-time under the rules. So they don't have health insurance. They don't have any kind of protections. Yeah. You have gig workers, people who work for, for Uber or, uh, or you know, Grubhub or whatever, who are considered independent contractors, even though that's not really what they are. Yeah. Um, and then you don't, so you have all those things. You know, we're one of the only major industrialized countries in the world that doesn't have paid medical and family leave. So, like, there's all kinds of things that, that we should be doing. And, and uh, UBI is definitely one of them. And advocating for that is essential. I think the other thing that's absolutely essential and it's a big, it's a big, big, very big value proposition is in me is is Medicare for all that mm -hmm. we need to move away from a proprietary healthcare system into a single payer publicly funded healthcare system that would cover all Americans. If the United States had that, our recovery would be much less what it is and more like South Korea, or would be much more like I know this is going to trigger some people, but it'd be a lot more like Cuba, mm -hmm. where they've actually helped stave off a lot of 
the crisis in their home country and now sending doctors overseas to help people. Vietnam mm -hmm. is another great example of that. Vietnam has a very robust public health system. And, and because they are a largely socialist country, they were able to sort of plan and implement a lot this out farther than other countries were. So that's really what I'm advocating for is, yes, it's Keynesianism, but we need to go beyond that and actually advocate for some kind of form of planned economy or some form of socialism that would actually really put real value into regular people and not just the financial system. Mm. Yeah, the the um, I guess the the main driver for me on on um, Medicare for all is a, more of a normative argument um, than than a sort of descriptively financial one, even though that does make sense to me, too. Um, it just it doesn't seem Re reasonable ethically in in this you know day and time that um, you know pe people's health is something to be used in a in a profit margin. Um, it just doesn't seem, you know, I, the, I, I'm assuming that most of us would agree that the point of living in a society at this point is to uh, reap the benefits of a society, and it seems like. Uh, <laughs> it seems like that would just be one of the first that we would want to secure. Is you know. I, I, I can't remember who said this um, with respect to, to COVID, but, um, you know, he or she said when, you know, when someone gets sick in America, it's secondarily a health crisis. It's firstly a financial crisis. And that's, I mean, speaking as, you know, a, a young adult in America, and I'm sure you can empathize with this. It's true. I mean, you know, there are undoubtedly uh, checkups that I neglect to have or, um, you know, just like, mm, you know, my shoulder's been kind of bothering me the last couple of days. And, you know, obviously preventative care aside because of the the health complications. If we were in normal times, I probably wouldn't go get it checked out. I would just see if it got better in a couple of weeks because it's going to cost a, a dumb amount of money to do that. Um, and it just, yeah. yeah, it seems ethically speaking, you know, whatever you think of, even if it was less efficient and cost more money, it seems like that's kind of something that we want to secure as a society uh, which, I mean, you, you have to think the goal of a society is to benefit the individuals in the society, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's the, 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 that connection between the individual and the society is incredibly important. So yeah. there's a economist from the 20th century uh, who wrote a great book called The Great Transformation. It's a guy named Karl Polanyi. Mm. In the book, he sort of makes the argument for large, robust social spending like a single-payer healthcare system. And one of the arguments that he makes is that one of the arguments against sort of socialism or social democracy or, or planning or whatever is that, oh, it's a loss of freedom to the individual, that individuals will be harmed in this system. Now, that's not to say that that hasn't happened in, in, in more authoritarian regimes. That has. Mm -hmm. but, it, but that's not by default. And what Polanyi makes an argument of is that actually when you – when you actually invest in society and you provide people with basic needs, that actually gives them a lot more freedom and individuality than they would have before. And it actually allows them to be much more of an individual than they would have been under a traditional system. And so I, you know, it allows you to do a lot more with your life because you don't have to worry about the constant financial burden of Oh, do I have the money to afford this test? Oh, do I have the money to afford this treatment? That should never be the 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 in a in a society as wealthy as ours, that should never ever be the argument. And you know, and it's basically we we burden people with debt in order for 
the excesses of our you know the surplus of capital to go to the the, the capitalists. It doesn't go to the people who actually make the value. And so for me, I think that actually having a, a system that is more whatever you want to call it, social democratic, socialist, whatever, mm. actually gives people a lot more freedom and, and, and because it frees them from the burdens of stuff that should be taken care of socially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, we, we were talking about this uh, on That's BS a couple episodes back, but um, it, I remember my, my biggest sort of hang up with with the libertarian perspective on this is that it does seem to be sort of one of those systems where you trade kind of imagined temporary liberty for long-term loss of liberty right where you know if you if you sort of you know you advocate for just like a, an open market let let the let the uh, a congregation of individual atomistic forces decide what gets done in the short term, yes, I understand the impulse to say that that gives you more freedom, but it, I'm not sure it actually does in the long term. Um, and as a historian, I, you know, I, I, you can probably speak to historical exam examples of this more than I can, but um, it just seems like game theoretically speaking, it has in the U.S.'s history, if not other countries, led to a congregation of, of power in um, exceedingly a uh, fewer and fewer percentage of the population, which then limits the freedoms of the rest, um, you know, technically speaking. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And that's the contradiction at the heart of libertarianism, at least sort of in America, right? Because mm -hmm. libertarianism as a concept was actually a politically left term for much of, of, yeah. of modern history. And when you spoke of libertarian, we weren't talking about Milton Friedman. We were talking about, mm -hmm. you know, um, Mikhail Bakunin and, and Emma Goldman and the anarchists. That's who, you know, the left anarchists. That's who we were actually talking about. They sort of perverted and took the term. Um, but anyway... You're right. The central contradiction within modern libertarianism is in order to achieve the amount of economic liberalism that they want, the sort of open markets, free trade, low regulations, this and that, and that you actually have, an, have to have an incredibly large and authoritative state to achieve it. Mm. And so this is the central crux, right? So there's a wonderful book by Naomi Klein called The Shock Doctrine that's all about how this plays out. And the example that she uses is 1973, Chile, South American country. They had elected a democratically elected socialist leader named Dr. Salvador Allende. Uh, Allende was basically an enemy of the United States, not for any particular like authoritarian or brutal reason, but, but precisely because he was an out, it was an out left government in South America, which the United States has an incredible track record of destroying because they don't like it. And what they sort of did in that country was they led a coup, a, a you know a coup d'état, a, a brutal uprising of power from the mm -hmm. Allende government, and with the backing of the CIA, they they installed this dictator named Augusto Pinochet, and this happened on September 11th, 1973. Um, it's what Noam Chomsky calls the first 9/11, <laughs> and um, and so. What happens then is that Milton Friedman, the economist, you know, very well-known economist, libertarian, um, uh, monetarist econo economist from the United States, and was very well-known with the sort of the Chicago School of Economics at the University of Chicago. Milton Friedman was a, a student of F.A. Hayek. 
Um, and the Austrian School of Economics, again, libertarianism, free markets, limited government, low regulations. And what they did in, in Chile was essentially uh, push forward economic liberalism and a move away from socialism or social de democracy in Chile. And they did it using an incredibly authoritarian government to do it. And if you look at most countries in order in the ways that that happened, that's exactly the case, right? So this happened in Russia, post-Soviet Union. When Boris Yeltsin was elected president of, of the, the Russian Federation, there was a period of time where the Duma, the, the legislature of Russia, was essentially shut down for a year. And he sort of ruled as a virtual dictator for about a year while the IMF and the World Bank set up the liberalized economy of Russia. Um, I would argue that the sort of libertarian uh, policies of sort of free trade and liberalization, all of those things, and that sort of brutal push for them in a very short amount of time is what gets you people like Vladimir Putin. And the sort of oligarchic system that's in Russia today is directly a result of sort of libertarian economic policy of sort of forcing a society without kind of democratic consent into an economic system that they didn't ask for. So that's one of the things I think that's incredibly important when we understand libertarianism. Libertarianism really isn't about freedom. When you hear people talk about libertarianism, they always say it's freedom, freedom, freedom. I always f I'll follow up with the question, freedom for whom? Mm -hmm. Whom do you wish to have freedom? Who do you want to actually give freedom to? It's not the regular people. The people you actually want to give the freedom to are the financial interests in, that you're going to benefit from. It's the economic interests. And in my opinion, libertarianism, if left unchecked, leads straight to fascism. There isn't much of a stretch to go from you know hard right economics right into hard right authoritarian politics. And look no further than what's going on in Hungary right now. Viktor Orban has essentially declared himself dictator of Hungary. Again, it's a former post-Soviet state that liberalized very quickly without really liberalizing democratically and so and politically. So I think that libertarianism is a farce. I think it's a fairy tale that people tell themselves to feel good about stepping on other people. <laughs> um, and uh, and I think that, you know, it's something people need to get over mm. and realize it doesn't work. And this whole crisis uh, we're going through right now proves to you that libertarianism, libertarianism just doesn't work. Mm. Yeah, that uh, the thing and I know I've tended to agree with you this entire time. It's because I, I kind of have. But like I said, you know, it's one thing to um, to for, for me to diagnose the problem, which is relatively easy. It's another to propose a better solution. So yeah. what um, I guess what it's funny, there is there is some this sort of like more Republican part of my brain. Uh, the, that is just, it's watched too many Prager U videos or something. And, and it's, <laughs> and it's, you know, it's kind of, it's worrying about, um, the, the implications of going to a, to a more, um, I guess, you know, you can call it extreme, but maybe that's just, you know, categorizing it wrong, but solution, um, of a, a sort of more socialist or, uh, a more democratic socialist um, solution to this. W what are what are the in your mind like the main, you know? Because there are obviously terrible arguments against it. But what are some of the better ones that you've heard? So the better arguments, sort of uh, uh, against. So are you seeing better arguments against socialism? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So one of the I think one of the better arguments against socialism is is a tr is a loss of democracy. So if you look at the history of the world particularly when you look at sort of sustained socialist governments in the world, right? Mm -hmm. So the first 
real experiment in socialism that had any kind of staying power outside of the Paris Commune, which you can sort of, in 1871, where um, Paris was essentially ruled by a communist government for a matter of, I think, like three months before the, 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 the counter-revolutionary forces shut it down, is the Soviet Union. And if you really look at the history of the Soviet Union, you know, um, early on, right? So if you're thinking about the earlier period, right, you know, right as the revolution is happening, you see a widespread amount of democratic reforms that actually do happen. So you see, you know, you see um, universal suffrage of, of directly elected representatives who can who are subject to recall. And you also see. Um, the sort of decriminalization of a lot of activities, particularly homosexuality, was decriminalized in the Soviet Union before the Stalinist period. So you have all of those things that happen, right? Mm -hmm. The problem with implementing socialism is that, in my opinion, implementing socialism in a country requires a certain level of development. And this is Marx's point, where in order for a he, the country he thought that would go socialist was not Russia. He thought it was the United States. And precisely for this reason was because the United States had a certain level of economic development that allowed it to transition to socialism. You know, the the Soviet Union basically went from being a, fe a feudal peasant society, very, very poor, to an industrial power within 20 years. And, mm -hmm. and, and in order to achieve some of that, you needed to have a essentially an increased amount of statism and bureaucratization to achieve it. And that's where Stalin comes in. This is one of the stronger arguments against socialism, I think, is that, is that it leads to bureaucratization. It leads yeah. to an increasingly authoritarian statism that is harmful to individual liberty, that is harmful to democratic rights, and that's, and that's um, harmful to democracy. Those are real issues that we have to deal with. And those are real issues that I constantly think about as a socialist, what I would argue for which is why the value of democratic socialism and why I advocate for sort of democratic socialism is this idea that we cannot let go of the gains mm. of liberal democracy. We only need to expand them. And so, you know, for me, what socialism is, is it's not just abandoning everything that we've achieved. It's building upon it. So the way that we do that, the way we sort of ensure democracy within a socialist framework for me is by maintaining strong democratic norms, by maintaining elections, by maintaining political rights, by mm. not throwing out the Bill of Rights, by not throwing out the Constitution, by having a set of core principles and values, you know, something like a UN Declaration of Human Rights. All of those are valuable to keep and that what we seek to do is you haven't is to take democracy and expand it into the economy. We haven't, you know, we sort of or, or we're very big about democracy until we start talking about the workplace. And it's like, mm. no, we actually have to democratize the workplace, too. So, uh, like I mentioned him earlier, the economist Richard Wolff, he's written a great book about this called Democracy at Work, where he makes the argument for worker owned co-ops. And if you look around the world, worker co-ops are incredibly successful. You know, there are about 6,000 of them in the United States. I don't know how many are of them now, but that was the last number before the COVID-19 outbreak. Yeah, yeah. One of them is in Baltimore, Maryland. It's called Red, Emma, Red Emma's. It's a restaurant and a bookstore. And it is owned by the workers. They collectively make the decisions democratically. And they, they have a certain level of planning within the system itself. The largest co-op that's very successful is known as the Mondragon Corporation out of Spain. 
You know, it employs, I think, something like 60,000 people, immensely successful, immensely large, but it's Hmm. incredibly democratic and it's worker owned. Now, will, will there always be inequities? Yes. Unfortunately, that's just, I think, human nature. I don't think we're ever going to everybody. The goal is not for everybody to be absolutely equal. That was never what Marx ever advocated for or mm-hmm. any socialist really advocate for other yeah, than that'd be of, terrible. Yeah, that'd be terrible. Right. That's yeah, sort of what yeah. the bourgeois utopian socialists would have argued for, which Marx mm. and Engels said, no, we're not utopian socialists. Mm-hmm. Um, is actually that like the pay divide between like the highest paid person in the Mondragon Corporation and like the regular employee is like eight to one. Mm. Whereas like in the United States, like the average CEO to average worker is like 350 to one, right? Yeah, yeah. So the goal is to change the system in a way that is in keeping with democratic and human and human rights. Mm. That we that we embrace humanism, that we embrace the sort of values, uh, the, the good values of liberalism and the good values of the Enlightenment and not abandon them. And... Mm. And I think that's the way we we achieve it. So that would I think to me that's the strongest argument against socialism is that it does lead inexorably to authoritarian politics. And I think we have to have a, I think a very robust and healthy discussion about how to avoid that because yeah. you know the Soviet Union collapsed you know thirty one years and you know um, you know I was born in nineteen ninety I was born right as the Soviet Union was collapsing. I've never grown up in a society with the Soviet Union that I can remember right. Mm. Um, communist China, you know, the, you know, is basically become state capitalism. They're not, you know, they're called the communist government or whatever. They're the people's Republic, but it's a state capitalist system and incredibly repressive. Right. So we have to make a stronger argument as socialists that we are going to create a system that is in fact democratic, because to me, that's what socialism is. It's the expansion of democracy beyond the political realm and into the economic realm. And if you're losing that sense of democracy, then the game is up. So that's, I think, to me, a really strong argument against socialism. And what I've said as well is a good way of sort of counteracting that and having that discussion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess uh, you you alluded to it, but um, there is, <clears throat> I guess there is this, it's not completely unfounded fear that because it's harder to raise sort of the bottom of the barrel than to push down the top of the barrel that it does, uh, you know, you get the arguments that it intrinsically and inherently leads to an authoritarian state. Um, and it, 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 it's weird because it does, <clears throat> I mean, it does seem like the, the first, you know, obvious solutions is to push the top down because it's way easier to tax, um, you know, the, the, the multimillionaire CEOs than to somehow bring up, you know, the lowest, um, the lowest people in the lowest roles in society. Um, and I, and I see, you know, it it is, um, in a very Kantian sense, um, you know, it is a violation of that person's autonomy to, um, you know, to, to push them down in one sense. And then in another sense, you know, you have to look at how they actually made that money. Um, because, you know, there's, you know, the, the, the phrase, this, the phrasing of a self-made man, right. But even, even the quintessential self-made man isn't in a true sense self-made. I mean, because everyone's benefited from, the the architecture of the system in which they got to the top in you know it's only possible for bill gates to be bill gates because of the system that he was um you know he was arbitrarily born into so no one really owns their success all the way down um but i am i do understand and am sympathetic to the concerns of the violation of of autonomy to any individual in the system 
Yeah, and I agree with that. And I think one of the other problems that I think pitching socialism to people has is that, oh, well, people will have no incentive to do to do mm. innovative things. They won't have ambition, this and that and the other. And I think that's a value. I think that's an I think that's a viable question. I think that's an important question. So one of the things I would say is, you know, when we're talking about sort of safe, self-made people and this and that, I think it's important for us to have a real conversation about who really creates wealth and having a conversation of what that means, right? Mm -hmm. So this is where we can get into sort of the the over the, the sort of overarching paradigms of the ideology of neoliberalism that we live under now is the the theory of marginal utility. That's sort of the the the, the central theory behind how prices are set in an economy like this. So the theory of marginal utility comes out of the late 19th century. It's actually a response to Marx and the classical economists. So to back up for a minute, Marx's central view of capital was based on, on what is called the, the labor theory of value, mm. which is not an idea he came up with. It's an idea he actually got from the classical economists, Adam Smith and David Ricardo. Mm. And what the labor theory of value says is that the value of an item is related, is directly related to the amount of labor put into it. Mm. And what Marx does is he breaks it down into three categories. You have value as a whole, and then you have two other subsets. You have what's called use value and exchange value. Use value is um, the, the amount of use, the, the kind of value you can get out of using something. So like right mm -hmm. now, we're using microphones. They have a use value, right? But there's also what's called an exchange value. So let's say I'm down to my last dollar and I need to eat. <laughs> I can take this microphone that I'm using and I can sell it on the market for what it's worth for a level of exchange. It mm -hmm. then becomes what Marx calls a commodity. Mm. And... Marx's central insight in sort of extending Adam Smith and Ricardo's insight about the labor theory of value is he says, the surplus that's created in capital, what you call profits, the way you create those profits is by underpaying the people who create the labor. So when you go to a job and you're paid $10 an hour for the work, you're actually worth a hell of a lot more than the $10 they pay you. But they don't because the use value is trumped by the exchange value. And the exchange mm -hmm. value is the one that matters more. And so the classical economists of the late 19th century, particularly a guy named uh, uh, Jevons, who was a student of John Stuart Mill, he was one of the, he and a bunch of others, uh, Hans Hermann Bauwerk, who was one of the influences of Hayek and, and Ludwig von Mises of the Austrian school, they came up with the theory of marginal utility. It said, no, 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 no. Labor is not the, the central node of value, its utility. And so I heard a libertarian economist explain it to you this way. If you could put all of the labor in the world into the most beautiful fireplace, mm. you, could, you could do the most intricate wood paneling, you could put so much time into it. And you could go up to a person and says, I want $15,000 for this fireplace. And the person can say to you, I don't care what you want, I'll pay you 12. <laughs> And no, but I, it's worth fifteen. I I put fifteen thousand dollars worth of labor in this. I want fifteen thousand dollars. No, no, no. I'll pay you twelve, because that's the value of the utility of it to me. Mm -hmm. And so it changes the exchange, the 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 concept of value from being objective, meaning 
$15,000 of objective value of something into subjective value. Mm. And that's the shift that happens. So I think for us, one of the things we need to do is reclaim not just Karl Marx, but but Adam Smith. We need to reclaim this sort of uh, labor theory of value and, and and make the case that like the reason that Jeff Bezos is worth $150 billion is because that amount of wealth is stuff that he has not prov- – it's, it's an incredible amount of surplus exchange value that mm-hmm. he's not giving back to the people who actually created the value in it. Yeah. So that's kind of the question, right? And then you – so that's one of the other things. And so – the other component to this is talking about like, oh, well, socialism sort of destroys ambition, this and that and the other. Mm. The problem, I think, with that is is that if you look at the Soviet Union, and again, flaws and all, you know, the Soviet Union was a brutal authoritarian state. I, I'm not, I'm, this is what I'm about to say is not apologetics. Mm-hmm. What I'm going to say is this, that country with a planned economy went from being a rural peasant backwater to the second largest superpower in the world Hmm. in a period of about 30 years. So this idea that economy can't grow based on planning and that there, that ambition wouldn't go out, the ambition would go out the window. This is total nonsense, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at the Soviet space program, if you and how advanced the Soviet space program was at the collapse of the Soviet Union, there were more doctors in the Soviet Union than the United States and a couple other countries combined. So mm. this idea that, that ambition is just destroyed in a socialist system is nonsense. Um, to me, I think what actually does sort of tamper down innovation, what actually tampers down the incentive to be ambitious, is to live in a system where you work really, really, really hard and continue to get less and less and less and less for it. Well, Jeff Bezos mm. has $150 billion. Mm. That doesn't give me an incredible amount of incentive to work harder, you know? Yeah. No matter yeah. hustling is going to fix the system that you live in. Yeah. That no, was a bit all over the place, but hopefully that, you know. <laughs> no, that's that's super interesting. I'm going to have to re-listen to this and just, and just kind of mull over a lot of these points because it's, I mean, it, it really is something that, you know this this topic I've I've had an interest in for a long time, but it's it's really just sort of an interest. You know, it's it's you know I I understand that for me to learn enough to have like a an opinion I'm willing to kind of just put a flag in the ground on and and fight for is is going to be a ton of research and effort. And um, I think it's just it's an incredibly complicated uh, topic. I I, th- I my current position would be just to advocate for i mean it's it's almost it sounds kind of too commonsensical just to advocate for sort of just you know take the best bits of what each system can do and uh and cobble that together in a very sort of um you know i think i think finland is is doing this right now but they they sort of take a really empirical approach to passing policies you know they'll they'll pass a policy for and correct me if i'm wrong if you know this uh, better but i think they're they're experimenting now with passing ubi um, for uh, maybe a, a set amount of time or something like that, and just looking at whether or not it works, and uh, oh, you yeah. know if it if it works, then keep it, and if it doesn't, then don't. Um, and it just seems like there's there's some weird um, abhorrence to that experimental sort of economics in the United States, which is really strange to me yeah. because as a as a as a historian, if you really look at the revolutionary period, there. You know, there was an incredible amount of sort of political and economic experimentation. You know, mm. the sort of the godfather 
UBI is Thomas Paine. He advocated for it in the book I told you about earlier, Agrarian mm -hmm. Justice, where he makes the argument that um, that there should be a certain amount of grain that goes to everybody uh, uh, every month or every week based on the surplus. He made that argument, right? You know, mm. the founders very much believed in having an experimental kind of democracy. They didn't believe in this idea of it being very rigid, um, particularly when it comes to Jefferson. Jefferson believed that, um, you know, and Hamilton too, and Madison, they all believed in the idea of having a sort of vibrant democracy, a sort of a vibrant republicanism that would that would sort of mold and change with time. Mm. And that's the biggest problem I have with the United States is that it seems to me for basically since we've won the Cold War, the country really hasn't changed, like politically. The last mm. time we passed a, the the last time a constitutional amendment was ratified in this country was like 1994, yeah. and and it was for limiting uh, Congress Congress people to not give themselves raises during his legislative term. That was what it was, mm. right? And even that amendment itself was was um, introduced in 1787. It was introduced at the original that long to pass, yeah. and it took them that long to pass yeah. it. That's the last one. Yeah. So, so I think like the fact that we, you know, that we haven't done that to me, there are just, there are things right off the bat that we could do that would be amazing. One is the ERA, the equal rights amendment, which almost passed in the 1970s. Hmm. The, the ERA was, it was called the equal rights amendment. It was basically, it would guarantee equal treatment under the law on the basis of sex. Hmm. And it was pushed very, very strongly. Both parties supported it. Uh, you had, you know, Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford supported it. Um, it was incredibly bipartisan and it got passed by Congress and it was ratified by all states except for one more than it needed. And what stopped it was a right-wing zealot named Phyllis Schlafly who basically believed that if we passed the ERA, we would lead into sort of this sort of like hellscape where women dominated men and this and that and the other. She was also an extremely right-wing sort of Christian conservative. Uh -huh. um, and sort of, so the ERA is something we should do like right off the bat, right? Yeah. Congress should just repass it, have it be ratified by the states. That would be a huge shift in the consciousness, right? And imagine if the ERA didn't just protect men and women. What if it protected all genders, you know, mm. and really gave substantive constitutional protections for trans people? Like that, mm. to me, that that's like right off the bat. You know, the other thing we could do is pass a UBI. You know, social security for all mm. that everyone gets social security, everyone gets Medicare, everybody gets these things, you know, and politicians used to be that bold. One of my favorite president, my second favorite president, my favorite president is Lincoln, but my second favorite president is Franklin Roosevelt. Mm. Franklin Roosevelt introduced at the end of his presidency, toward the ends of his life, something called he called the Economic Bill of Rights where he laid out that everybody should be entitled to a certain amount of, of subsistence in their lives. Everyone is entitled to housing. Everyone is entitled to food. Everyone's entitled to a job. Everyone's entitled to healthcare. And it's in laying it all out and making the case that these are basic bedrock American rights that everybody should have. And so that's, I think, the other thing we need to talk about is the idea that socialism isn't this like weird, scary thing. <laughs> like socialism or social democracy, or whatever you wanna call it, is as mm. American as apple pie. It is built into our DNA as a country from Thomas Paine 
Victor Debs, who ran on the Socialist Party ticket multiple times, who advocated for the eight-hour workday, advocated for old-age pensions, which would become Social Security, all the way up to FDR. And to the the and up to people like AOC, or Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, or Bernie Sanders, is this argument that the United States is the healthiest and is the wealthiest country on earth. We have an obligation to our citizens to provide them with these basic rights, alongside freedom of speech, alongside freedom of worship, alongside freedom of due process. You should be guaranteed certain basic economic rights, and that is the way you sort of sell it, and. Mm. So that's what I would advocate for, but you don't really see that in either party. Most part, most of our politicians don't talk about any of this. This is a way of advocating for more democracy and more um, social democratic or socialist ideas without alienating people because they are as American as apple pie. They're yeah. not weird, this weird, scary thing. So, you know, that's to me, that's what we should do and advocate for. Yeah, no, it does. It, there's this really weird and very, it's kind of almost, uh, it's it's hard to, to break into the details of it and understand why, but there is this almost weird politicization, politicization of all of these ideas when you bundle them into these isms um, and like groups of people, right? And it just, it does, it, it seems like, I mean, I, I know, you know, I can't cite which study it was or whatever, but there have been many, many surveys that, um, you know, most Americans, by and large, actually support um, a lot of the ideas that would fall into what is, uh, you know, classically a socialist bin of ideas, right? And it's just because, you know, I think, I think these ideas just make ethical sense to people, and they make numeric and financial sense to people. It's just when we valence all of these ideas in terms of teams of politics, it it, it seems like. That, I mean, that is both what the American system of politics is built on and what is killing it and, and starving it of oxygen and of change right now. Uh, it's just, it, it's weird. I, I don't know. It's, it's, I, I honestly don't know how to get past that because it seems like, I mean, look at, look at the situation we're in now, COVID, for instance. If anything should be a bipartisan issue, it's this, right? I mean, it's mm -hmm. just, you know, like who cares if it's a Republican or a Democrat who comes up with the best solution? Who could possibly care about that? It should just be let's figure out how to tread water at, at first and then see if we can get to shore after that, right? And it just it doesn't matter if the, the lifeboat's red or blue. Um, and it's it just I don't know how to work around that tribalist quirk in our psychology but it seems like that is what has really just run off the rails especially i mean either i'm sure you're aware of it there are these two i mean it's a great chart that shows um the the political divide in america over the past few decades where in the 70s the attitudes of uh republicans to democrats and democrats to republicans were largely overlapping people viewed other people as humans who disagreed with them and now we view each other as the devil incarnate uh and it just it just seems like i, I don't know how to get past that problem but it seems like a crucial problem to get past yeah i totally agree with you and then i think at least in my perspective, I mean, I think the way that we sort of help break that gridlock is acknowledging that the Democratic and Republican parties are basically the same. Mm. They're not that different. What they're different on is really cultural stuff. So when you're seeing that polarization that happens in the United States, the vast majority of it is related to cultural issues. It's related to things like abortion mm. and gay rights, LGBTQ rights. It's, it's, um, 
it's uh it's guns mm. it's you know multiculturalism versus traditionalism the problem that i think happened with the democratic party was that it completely gave up its ground on economic issues and went wholesale into cultural issues mm. so what you see now with in my opinion within the democratic party is that on economics, on the actual, like on the actual material conditions of people, the Democrats aren't that different from Republicans. And if you need any proof of that, just look at these massive bailouts they just gave. You know, mm -hmm. there are basically no Democrats besides maybe like AOC or Bernie Sanders, who's not even a Democrat, fighting for more worker protections and worker worker compensation. But the vast majority of the Democrats don't do that, mm -hmm. the, because they're just as bewedded to the same system as the Republicans are. It's the mm. donor class. The donor class is truly what, what has broken our politics. Both parties are wedded to donor class money and political consultant money. The way to me, for me, that we break this gridlock and the way that I think some on the right, right, and some on the left can really unite together is on economic populism, is that you make the argument that we need policy in this country that actually help the people and not the corporations, not the hedge fund managers, not the party bosses, not the elites, and actually help people. And those are things that can cut across cultural lines, right? This is something mm -hmm. you can get the, the, the most, you know, soy latte drinking liberal <laughs> And the redneck whiskey drinking conservative to agree on is that the man, the big man upstairs, the boss is screwing me over. And then mm. it's about time we have an economic system where it's not so added to that, right? You can get libertarians on board with some of this because a lot of regulations that they don't like actually mm. benefit huge corporations. They don't benefit regular mm. workers. Liberals can get on board because it's actually going to create a certain level of economic equality that you're going to have a certain amount of of economic benefit for regular people. Right. Mm. And this divide that exists, in my opinion, the sort of two party divide in this country is largely a myth. It's something that people have used in order to to distract us from what's really going on, which is that there's one overarching ideology that combines both parties together economically, and that is neoliberalism which is the idea that everything is a market transaction. Everything is left up to the market. Everything is left up to, to the whims of finances, right? Mm. And both parties embrace that. And it started in the 1980s with Reagan. It was basically etched in stone in the 1990s by Bill Clinton. Both, both parties, uh, presidents of both parties have implemented these kinds of economic policies. And the cultural dressings that they both have are the real divides. If people were to put those cultural things aside for a moment and realize that the elites of this country on both sides of the political spectrum are hell-bent on creating an economic system that leaves you behind, mm -hmm. that is, I think, a message that resonates with people. And, and then just another side thing, not only do we need to embrace that sort of populism, but we need to have a viable left in this country. We do not have a viable left in this country. We mm. have a centrist party in the Democrats and we have a right-wing party in the Republicans. We do not have a left party. And if you look in, in American history at all of the great gains of the 20th century, whether it was the eight-hour workday, you know, banning child labor, uh, protections for women, the civil rights movement, voting rights, all of them, who was at the center of all of it? It was the socialists. It was the communists. 
It was the trade unionists. It was the radicals. It was the leftists. The hmm. leftists were the ones who pushed the mainstream to do what it did. There, in, 19, in the 1930s, when FDR was president, there was a man named Norman Thomas. He was the presidential candidate on the Socialist Party ticket. Norman Thomas basically advocated for everything that FDR did, but did it four to eight years before FDR did. Hmm. And made the argument for Social Security, you know, made the argument for an eight-hour day, made an argument for nationalizing the, 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 the farms, all of it. And, you know... And so, so much so, was actually said that um, that uh, he was so disgusted with FDR, he basically said like he's put my program in a in a coffin. <laughs> but but the point is, is that a lot of the gains of the New Deal Roosevelt era were precisely because of the radical left elements within American politics: the socialists, the communists, the trade unionists, the anarchists. Those are the ones who did it, right? And if you look at what's happened with the Republican Party, it's the exact same thing. If you looked at what's happened post-2008, post-George W. Bush, the Republican Party has completely changed. and went from being a largely neoliberal, sort of culturally conservative party to being a economically populist, you know, uh, socially conservative party. You know, you went from George W. Bush to Donald J. Trump in eight years. And a big part of that was the Tea Party, which was the radical fringe. And that Tea Party was what pushed the Republican Party more towards its actual stated goals, which was limited government and cultural conservatism. Mm. So the left needs to get bold in this country. It needs to get stronger and it needs to be a viable alternative for people. That's why I'm thrilled that somebody like Howie Hawkins, an eco-socialist, is running on the Green Party ticket. I was a Bernie Sanders supporter. I was a Bernie Sanders supporter both times. I worked on the, his campaign the last time around. Uh, and so, you know, we need to have that argument of there needs to be a viable left to push the, the, the discussion in this country to be more, more reasonable. And you do that by advocating for, you know, more economically progressive and positive, um, ideas. Hmm. Yeah. It's just, I, I, you know, I think we've, we talked about this on the other show before, but, um, you know, the, it's funny because what's considered, uh, you know, left of center in the U.S. is basically the center of most of the rest of the first world. If um, not the center right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it just, it seems like, I, I don't know. I mean, America is such a strange country in this respect. But we, it, we, we, I just, I feel like we're sort of, we're hashing out the debates of, of, you know, decades ago. Oh, just over and over again. You know, it's just kind of the same I don't know. I feel like every election almost it's I'm not that old, so I can't remember a lot of elections, but it just seems like it's a lot of the same issues just rehashed over and over when they're not even the interesting questions. Uh, it's just I mean, they're really not. It should just be. I don't know. I guess it it, it just seems like we, we really should take a um, just just take sort of like a more broad approach to these things and look at what other countries are doing and say, you know, how, how is how is the United States different from other countries? And and if we can agree on, you know, it almost seems like it really we, we need to focus on the metrics of success rather than solutions first, because it doesn't seem like we're aligned on the metrics of success. Um, it seems like part of the country's metric of success is how rich can you possibly get and, you know, so, some other people advocate for a metric of success that, that talks about, you know, raising uh, how low you can fall in society. And there's another, you know, aspect of it that, that talks about how, 
how, you know, how many rights can we protect of certain individuals? And it seems like we're just, you know, we're, we're really much taking the shotgun approach and we should be taking a rifle approach of just, you know, we need to understand what, what we almost need to dig to the point of values and then look at solutions because, if your solution doesn't address the value that that people care about, we need to talk about what values we should care about. Um, it just doesn't seem like a like a reasonable conversation to have. Well, you know, re- maybe reasonable but not useful, not productive. I could not agree with you more. I, I think that's the real problem. I think in American politics specifically, and I think there's so much inertia in this country mm-hmm. uh, uh, with our politics, is that it's very technocratic. And if you and, and what I mean by that is that if you particularly, especially with the Democratic Party, it's not so much the Republican Party, but especially within the Democratic Party, there's this sort of obsession with smartness mm. and this obsession with like degrees and 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 technical fixes. You know, I don't know how much you ever, you ever read Vox, but but Vox is very much like the mindset of a Vox reader is very much a I care a hell of a lot more about the means than I care about the ends. Mm. And my thinking on the subject is, if you don't really know what the ends are or what the ends that you want, then why? what in the world are you actually doing any of this for? Mm-hmm. There are people who I think part of the problem with our politics is there's also there's just an obsession with technocracy and there's an obsession with process. There's mm. an obsession with, oh, but we have to get this amount of people on board. This wouldn't be passed because these people wouldn't vote for it. Oh, it has to get through this committee, blah, blah, blah. It's like. When we're having all these like little petty discussions about maneuvering and this and that and the other, we lose sight of like, what are we actually doing? What are the actual values that we're advocating for, right? Mm. That's the problem that I have with the Democratic Party in the United States is that to me, you know, uh, the Democratic Party in the United States is intellectually dead. There's Mm. nothing about it that's that's particularly interesting. That's part of the reason why the most... I think the most uh, uh, exciting candidate that they've had for the presidential campaign the last two cycles has been a 78-year-old independent <laughs> socialist from Vermont. It took that for the Democratic Party to get out of its decades-long stupor of being obsessed with technocracy, being obsessed with with accreditations and credentials and, and instead of actually talking about values. Mm. Because when the Democrats do talk about values, it tends to be pretty damned platitudinous. You know, if you want to look at the emptiness of most Democratic politics, Democratic Party politics, look at someone like Pete Buttigieg, mm. who every other word out of his mouth is a platitude. But when you yeah. actually when you actually corner him and ask him, what do you actually believe in? What he actually believes in is corporate centrism. Mm-hmm. That's what he believes in. Do I yeah. believe in Medicare for all? No. Do I believe in a Green New Deal? No. Do I believe in in taxing the wealthy? No. But I believe in bringing hope for a new dawn of America. It's like it's mm-hmm. bullshit. I don't want mm-hmm. to hear that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And and so people are realizing it's nonsense. So I agree with you. Values come first. In in my opinion, politics is politics is based on values. Governing is based on process. Mm. You can figure out the governing part when you're in power. You need to make the moral and value driven argument when you're running, because if all you're going to do when you're running for president is talk about all of the different plans you have and how I have a 12-point plan for this and I have a 32-slide PowerPoint, I can show you how it works, that kind of politics is totally inept and brain dead. And mm-hmm. if you want any example of that, look how how hard Elizabeth Warren failed in this, this recent cycle. Ms. I've got a plan. 
I don't care if you've got a plan. If I don't really care whatever plan you have, what I want to hear is your values mm. because you can have 857,222 different great, great plans that are amazing. If they're not backed by any kind of actual value, if they're not based on any core value propositions you hold as a human being, then your plans are up for being perverted, distorted, and destroyed ultimately. Mm. And that's the thing. We need to get values back into politics. We have to, in left politics especially. The right's very good at this. They're very good at talking about values. They're very good at it. That's why they win all the time. Yeah. I mean, I think they win all the time because they're just better at politics than Democrats are. Yeah. Um, I, I just think they're objectively better at it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, which is why, like, you know, like a former first lady come senator, come secretary of state lost to a, to a game show host and failed real estate magnate is because yeah. they're just bad at politics. Yeah. So technocracy, in order for democracy to thrive, technocracy has to die. And mm. that's just kind of my view of it. That's super interesting. That's that's really really interesting. So I'm I'm realizing that we're coming close uh, to an hour and a half, and I actually didn't. Well, this is a, the sign of a good podcast. But I haven't <laughs> actually um, asked you any of the prepared questions that I had. I'm so sorry. I, no, we, we no, that's no. I'm 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 bringing that out as a metric of the success of, of okay, the good, conversation. Good, good, yeah. Good. good. Um, so I think I think it's it's definitely a cause for uh, a second appearance. Um, but okay. uh, for for now, I guess because I think you know uh, I I wouldn't want to sort of segment uh, this this uh, episode into you know the talk that we just had and then also kind of shift to just issues that don't on the surface relate to it. Okay. Um, but I I think you know what we've talked about so far. Um, is really really interesting and and i want to listen to this again and i think um you know people who have made it this far in the conversation are you know more open-minded than most because i think both of us have said enough to anger almost any side at this point oh my god yeah, um, yeah, yeah i've made everybody yeah. mad i've i've i have pissed off your 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 anti-communists and i've made your woke liberals angry too yeah so, yeah yeah it's i <laughs> That's the value of being a leftist. I'm not a liberal or conservative. I'm not like I'm, mm -hmm. you know, I'm a leftist. I'm a socialist. So I don't, I don't play into that game. So yeah, yeah. I piss off everybody. I'm okay <laughs> with that. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I want to encourage people because we did, I wanted to discuss a few of your, um, your blog posts, which we've been oh, reposting yeah, a few of yeah. on Muckraker Media. But I mean, you know, I, I think this is fruitful uh, ground for, for a second conversation for sure. So um uh, I guess I guess to close out, I, I would encourage people to go visit your blog because there are some great articles on there. And uh, I guess just just tell people uh, where they can find that and the rest of your work. Sure. So um, everything about me is at justinclark.org. Um, com was taken. That's why ah. it kind of sounds a little pretentious to have the .org. <laughs> it was better than .net. It is. Um, yeah. You can read my writing there at the blog. Um, I've got some stuff I'm working on. Um, there's a really one of my favorite articles I have up there is about um, the Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Žižek and mm. talking about Buddhism and its relationship to capitalism. Uh, uh, and then the secular humanism of Paul Kurtz, um, one of my heroes, somebody who knew how to do humanism right um, mm. and somebody whose view we should really get back to in terms of talking about humanist politics and just humanist philosophy in general. 
Um, but yeah, justinclark.org. You can also learn about what I do in my day, my, my, uh, my day job. I'm the digital initiatives director for the Indiana State Library. I, I work on digitizing historical collections for a living. You can watch some of the videos I've made about historical topics there and, and learn a little bit about what I do as a public historian. And then also definitely check out Muckraker Media. Um, my stuff's on there as well now. And then I've got a few articles that I'm sort of working on right now. I'm working on an article about Isaac Asimov mm-hmm. and uh, his leaving of Mensa because he thought IQ people were weird. Um, <laughs> I'm working on an article about um, uh, Lenin, Vladimir Lenin, and uh, his view of religion. Mm-hmm. And I'm working on an article about Don, John Dewey and democracy, which I think is very particularly important for tonight's discussion. Mm-hmm. So those are things that will be coming down the pike. Um, I tend to write a lot slower than I read and talk, so bear <laughs> with me if it doesn't if it doesn't come to you right away. <laughs> but uh, but that's where you can find my stuff. Yeah, uh, th- thank you for that, and thank you again for being on the show. I think it was um, I didn't plan to cover any of this, but it was super 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 interesting. Um, so thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, like I said, I, I've been cooped up in my house and my wife can only hear so much of this from me. So I, <laughs> so I appreciate you humoring me. I hope I yeah. talked more with you than at you um, Yeah, because yeah. I can get on a roll. So, yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, thank you again. And to, to our listeners, stay on the line, Justin. But to our, to our listeners and viewers, uh, thank you for watching and tune in next time. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode and learned something from it. Um, all of the show notes to Justin's material, I will leave, um, or all of the, the references to Justin's material, I will leave in the show notes below. And, um, you know, as, as always, you know, I, I say this at the end of every episode, but, um, you know, thank you for watching or listening if you're still doing so at this point. You can support my work at patreon.com forward slash Jordan Myers. You can also support this uh, podcast in non monetary ways by sharing it on Twitter or on social media, uh, rating it on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find it and listen to it. You can like this video or subscribe um, via YouTube or RSS feed. You can discuss it on your own show and link back to this one, or uh, connect with me in general and um, recommend guests or topics I can cover, um, or just get in touch with me uh, for any for any you know reason you may have. You can do so at Plato's Cave Podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter, at Jordan underscore C underscore Myers. And as always, um, thank you again for listening and for struggling to escape the cave. Until next time, thank you. Plato's Cave is produced by Muckraker Media. You can find out more at muckrakermedia.org.